Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. You can uh, find your seats. As you're sitting down, make sure you get uh, a little pot. I know that I could, that could be taken differently depending on the setting you're in, telling people to get a little pot before you sit down for a spiritual experience. But I'm talking about this little clay pot that we gave you, so don't be confused. Okay? Um, hey, if you break it, that's a good illustration, and I'll explain that in a minute, but try not to break it. Um, we are in our series through the book of 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's where we'll be. Um, and in our series, when Paul is writing this letter, he tells them exactly why he's writing. In the first part of the book, right at the beginning, he says, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So literally, Paul, from the beginning of the book, is like, look, I'm writing this book because I want you to know the God of all comfort. And then when you read the book, there's a lot of things in the book that are not real comforting in our modern day. But as we dig in, you'll see that that's exactly the case. We've been going through this. Last week, we talked about the idea of the glory of God and the glory of man, how God created us. We gave away little mirrors last week for you to see your reflection, your image. Do you reflect the image of Christ? Do you believe what Jesus says about you, that if you have a relationship with him, you are a new creation? And we looked at Paul talking about that last week and bringing comfort to the people to say, God loves you. He wants to give you a new identity. But again, to have a new identity, what has to happen? You have to die to the old identity. And that's exactly where Paul goes in chapter four. He goes into death. Listen, death is one of those hard things, really hard, because it's so final. It's like after death happens, when death happens and that's it, it really is difficult because that's, I can't say anything else to that person. I can't help that person. It's over. And Paul understands that it's in that moment for all of us and that fear of death that we need to understand clearly the comfort of God. Because death is coming for all of us. Some sooner than others. But that's the one guarantee in this life is that you don't get out alive. <laughs> you don't. Every one of us is going to have to face the reality of death. And when you get to that point, listen, I've been a pastor or been in ministry for 30 years. I've been with people in their last days. I've been with families and funerals. And when you come to that last moment, it's amazing the people who are believers, the incredible comfort and peace that is in that room when you're in the room, that is with their family, it's beautiful. And it's also awful to watch those who don't have the guarantee of heaven, they don't understand a relationship with Jesus, and to see the utter despair and brokenness and mess that they don't know what to deal with. And Paul, after writing that he wants us to find our identity in him, he says, look, but to have this new identity, to have this new glory, there's a death that has to happen. Someone has to pay the price for the mess that was created. And so he goes into this next chapter. Remember, 
We looked at this last week, but Paul is writing and he's had a long-term relationship with this Corinthian church. A long-term. He founded this church, okay? He then wrote them a letter because after he founded the church and was there for a number of years, he went on to start other churches and turn the church over to leaders. And when he did that, he then wrote a letter back because they were doing all the wrong things. They weren't dying to themselves. They were actually putting Jesus on things they were supposed to die to and quit doing. And Paul writes this letter and he says, you got to stop this. And then Paul writes his first epistle, that 1 Corinthians, actually it was a letter, and then he writes another letter, which is 1 Corinthians, which we have, so that's a lost letter, that first one. Then Paul visits them, he, he, he wants to, to go, and he, and he has to visit them, and it was a painful visit because they weren't doing the things that he asked them to do. They weren't willing to give up and die to the things that represent who God is and become a new person. And so Paul had to come in and like with a heavy hand say, this has got to stop and this has got to stop. And he confronted people and called them out and it was a mess. And then Paul maybe wrote another letter. We're not sure if he wrote four or three, scholars disagree. But either way, eventually Paul writes 2 Corinthians because after this years long process, that Paul goes through with this church, the church in Corinth finally gets it. They finally start dying to the things that they were living for. They start giving up and saying, God, we want your authority. We want to believe you. We want to do what your word says, not what we think it says or what we think is right. And Paul is writing this letter to basically say, thank you. You're now experiencing the comfort I was trying to get you to experience in the beginning, but you kept all these other things around for your comfort, and they were killing you. You know, and isn't that true in our culture? Most people that are addicted to something, it's not good for them. Smoking, alcohol, food, whatever it is, when you have that addiction, it's slowly killing you, but it brings you comfort. So you don't want to give it up. You run to it to grab that comfort you're looking for, but it's killing you little by little by little. And God says, don't do it. Trust me that if you'll do what I tell you really will bring you comfort and the things that I say in a relationship with me that will bring us together and will bring others comfort, instead of dying, you will live. By dying to those things, you will find life. And that's exactly where we find the letter. So let's dive in. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, we talked about that last week. The light of the glory that we reflect and we see the person of Christ in us. And then he says, now we have these treasures, or we have this treasure in clay jars. Now, they were jars, not necessarily little pots, but this was the best I could do. So th this clay pot, these little clay jars, and the reason that God has put his message in something so fragile, so ordinary, so small, 
is because he wants to get the credit for what he can do instead of the pot and what's in it and around it get the credit. Jesus said if, if you just plant a little seed, it can bring an amazing fruit. And if you start a little seed in here, let's say we started an oak tree in this today. You went home, you planted an oak seed, an acorn in here, and you allowed it to start growing, eventually you're going to transfer it out of this into a bigger pot and into something bigger. And then eventually that oak tree is going to start producing other acorns and they're going to get washed into streams and taken around and go down into the ground and squirrels are going to come and get the acorns and then squirrels run around and hide them. And then oak trees grow up all around your landscaping from squirrels and chipmunks hiding acorns. <laughs> That's exactly what God wants to do with the gospel. That, that's, that's exactly what he wants to do is it starts small. It starts with saying, God, this is all I am. This is all I have to offer. I've got nothing else. My life is yours. And I believe that you're going to, to fill me up and grow me into something I could never do myself. And so literally, he says, God is doing it this way so that he gets the credit, not some church, not you, not your spouse, not some pastor, but he gets the credit for what he has done. That is amazing. Goes on to say this in Isaiah. Isaiah says, yet, Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, and we are all the work of your hands. You see, it's amazing when you read the account of creation in Genesis, it says God spoke everything into existence except for man. When it gets to forming man, it says that God brought him out of the dirt, formed him, and then breathed life into him. It was intimate. It was a relationship. It was close. It wasn't just sun, moon, stars, galaxies. It was, okay, now I get to, I get to fashion the thing I've been waiting for. And all of this stuff that's been created is so that this thing I'm creating can see me and see my glory. It's like, wow. And yet you're just a little pot compared to the universe. You do nothing. And God says, oh, no, no, no. You are the glory of my eye if you know me. It's beautiful if you think about it. And so Paul is writing to them to say, look, there's death coming. There's problems. But man, take great comfort in what God has created you to be and what he wants to do in your life. Find comfort in that. Isaiah says it this way when he's talking to the people of Israel because what they did is instead of taking the pot that God gave them, they decided that they would create their own life, their own pot. They set aside theirs and look at what it says. You have turned things around, he says to Israel, as if the potter were the same as the clay. You act like God's on the same level as you. You act like a little God. That gets to tell God what to do. And you, you say, you should do this and you should do that. And if you don't, I'm not believing in you. Like, really? Like, we're that arrogant to tell the most powerful being in the universe that nanny nanny boo boo, I'm not going to believe in you. He's like, I don't need you to believe in me. I'm God. I create galaxies. 
I would like for you to. I'd love to have a relationship with you. And then he goes on and he says, look at this. How can what is made say to its maker, he didn't make me? Do you know how many people run around saying that? There's no God. Listen, everyone agrees that something started all of this from nothing. Somehow, or there was something eternal. There was an element, hydrogen or helium. There was something eternal that started everything. And we, we do spiritual jumping jacks and jump rope to try to get around the reality of a higher being. Because if there's a higher power, then I'm accountable. And if I'm accountable, then there's a cost. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, of not acknowledging who God is, and instead wanting God to be what you wanted to be, is death. Spiritual death. And physical death. And he goes on and he says, look, how can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? How many things in your life have you had to die to? Maybe you had to die to a family that wrecked your life. Parents that didn't stay together, they broke the relationship, and you suffered, and you watched your siblings suffer because of it. Maybe you've seen friends die, and you've had to, to look at God and say, I don't understand. Maybe you've had siblings pass away, family member, I don't know. Where you've looked, and you go, I don't understand what you're doing, and yet God all through the Bible has told us exactly what he's doing. See, it's not that we don't understand, it's we don't like it. We don't like the story, so we make another one. We come up with another testament, like Old Testament, New Testament, Matt's Testament. That's what, that's what we do. Because I, I just don't like, and God's saying, how can you, this little pot, think that you're gonna change the world? You know, we tell people that all that you can change the world. No, you can't. You cannot change the world. The world's going to be here long after you're gone, and it's, it's not going to, no, you can't. Well, then what do I do? Well, you get connected to the person who can change it, the one who created it. You get connected to him and walk simply with him and do what he simply says, and then you know what happens? This little oak, acorn, starts producing fruit and family, you realize that what God did, the reason all of you are sitting here this morning, the reason there's a bunch of people sitting in Jewish synagogues yesterday, and there are a bunch of people sitting, ready for this, in Islam and Muslim temples, is because there was one dude named Abraham who God said, I'm gonna, you're the acorn I'm gonna plant, and all the nations are gonna be blessed through you, and I'm gonna make you so numerous that the world's gonna know who you are. And the three major religions of the world come from Abraham to this day. Billions and billions and billions and billions of people from one guy saying, yes, God, I'll go where you want me to go, I'll do what you want me to do, and I'll do my best. And then he failed miserably, repented multiple times, and God said, okay, great. You know how many kids he had? A thousand? Nope, two. Two. Two kids, one illegitimately that he shouldn't have had, and Isaac. Now, if you're Abraham and you've been told you're going you're gonna to do great things, you're going to change the world, and God's like, well, you have no home, you have no land, you're going to travel around, you're going to have one kid, and then you're going to abandon him, and then you're going to have another kid, and that's going to be the promised kid. Okay, there you go. I've been faithful to you. Uh, I don't see, I don't think this is going to work. 
We do the same thing with God. And Isaiah says, look, don't tell God he doesn't know what he's doing. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, God uses this illustration of this pot. Again, he uses it all the way through the scripture. It says, but hold on to what you have, the relationship you have with me until I come. Hold on to the fact that you're just a little pot, but I am going to plant something in there, grow it and send it out, replant it, plant again, send it out. I'm going to use that. And look what he says, Revelation 2.25. The one who is victorious and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over nations. That's Abraham. Abraham has authority over nations right now. Now, he's not calling the shots, but it's connected to him. And then it says, look at this, and he will shepherd them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. See, God, if you, if you want to make a new pot out of an old pot, you can't just shatter it and then try to make a new pot because if you put it on the wheel, what's going to happen to your hands? They're going to get cut up by the shards. You have to crush this to dust again, all the way so it's nothing but dust, and then add it to the mix and make something new. And God created Adam out of the dust. And we have a Savior Jesus who is going to come someday. He's going to crush everything and start over. And he's going to build a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be glorious. And he says, look at this. He goes on and says, just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. The light that shines in our heart that we just read about in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God wants to put a light in this little pot that lights up the world. And a little light in a dark room goes a long way. If you took this home, you put a little light in there and set it on your shelf and then turn the lights off, you'd probably be able to see to get around your whole room. If you let your eyes adjust, you'd, you'd probably be able to see to get around out of just this little thing. You wouldn't see really great, but you'd see enough. And God says, that's exactly what I've done. I want you to see enough. And you've got to be willing to be crushed so that you can be remade, he says. That's the death that Paul talks about. He goes on, look at what he says. Verse eight of 2 Corinthians four. We are pressured in every way, but we are not crushed. You see that? Not by the world. Why? Because we've already been crushed by Christ. We've already surrendered. We've already traded our life for his life. So the world can try to crush us. The world can try to destroy us. It ain't going to happen. I have an eternal home. I have an eternal savior. And I'm going to go through hard times. Paul was shipwrecked. He was sick. He was beaten. He was dragged into prison multiple times. Paul had a rough life. He didn't just claim this verse and be like, yeah, I'm good. Nothing's going to happen to me. It's like, no, 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 no. I recognize that if I go around and preach this message, the people who don't want to give their life to Christ are going to want to crush me. The people who don't want to be crushed by God and rebuilt are going to want to crush me. And then he says, look at this. We are perplexed, but not in despair. <laughs> How many of you have ever been perplexed by things going on in your life? <laughs> God, what are you doing? I am so perplexed, right? Especially if you're in a relationship. If you've been in a relationship with anyone for any amount of time, you will look at them and be like, I am perplexed 
but I, have, I don't know, I, I am perplexed by you. I, I can't figure you out, right? It's constant. And just when you think you haven't figured out, they do something totally weird and you're like, what, what was that, right? I mean, my wife was per perplexed for years with my dress. She's corrected that on my behalf. She's like, I'm perplexed by that. I can help you. I'm like, but I'm not in despair. She's like, I I'm in despair. <laughs> and he goes on and he says, look, he goes, we are persecuted. My wife's like, you, you got to change that, but not abandoned. She was like, you got to change that. Get out. She's like, you got to change that. And I want to help. You need some help, right? Yes, we're perplexed. We don't understand why God said we don't look right. We don't understand why he says the things he says. But I can know that he won't abandon me. He's doing, he is for me. He's made me. I, I can trust him with whatever he puts me through all the way to death because Jesus came back from the dead. And then he says, look at this. For we who, uh, and then he goes on, he says, we are struck down, but not destroyed. You're going to die. You are going to be struck down. Every human being does. And when they struck Jesus down on the cross, and when Satan struck Jesus down on the cross, he thought he had won. The Romans, the Jews, they all thought, yeah, got him. And three days later, he came back from the dead and walked around for 50 days around the Roman Empire. And they're like, we didn't get him. And now it's worse than it was if we would just let him be. See, God wants to do that in our lives. The problem is we don't want the death. I, I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to give my plans over to God and say, I trust you. We want to hold on to the pot we've made, the plans we've made. And God's like, no, 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 give that to me. And then he crushes and we're like, no, I I made that. He's like, no, no, we're going to make something better. Just trust me. We're gonna, we got, you're crushing it all. It's all it's just, yeah, I know. I got to get it all the way back down so that we can form something together. You did that on your own. Let's do it together. He goes on. It says this. He says, we always carry around the death of Jesus in our body. When Paul says body there, you got to remember, it's not just, we're not talking about your individual body. He's talking about the body of Christ, the church. That the church itself is always carrying around the reality of we're dying to ourselves so we can live for Christ. That's what communion is, which has been celebrated for thousands of years by the church. Jesus, when he left this earth, he didn't tell us to remember his resurrection. He wants us to, but he said, you remember and proclaim my death until I come back to resurrect you. The message is we have to give up so that God can win and have full authority in our hearts and in the lives of our church. Not I hold on to the power, but I surrender it. And then he says, look, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. If you want new life, you've got to die to the things that are killing you. If you want life, you've got to cut the cancer out and get the cancer out of your body. Otherwise, you're dying. And God wants to do surgery on the spiritual cancer of sin in our lives and in our body, the church. He goes on and it says, for we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus. 
And you pause and you go, this doesn't sound very comforting, Paul. <laughs> I thought this was a book about comfort. He's like, no, 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 no. If you understand that this is the mission and this is what you're doing and you're giving yourself over, then it's easy because you're like, I, I, here, I'm yours. I'm yours. And there is a comfort and a peace as you watch everybody else cling to their life and hold on to it. There is a peace when, again, I'll say it again, when you go into a hotel room and it's a lost person and they're clinging to life and they're breathing and they don't want to die and you're trying to tell them that they, they need to come to know Christ and they're just like trying to cling to life versus going into a hotel room, or I'm sorry, not, into a hospital room of someone who knows Jesus and they're like, I'm ready. And you're like, oh, I'll just sit here and pray with you. They're like, Thanks. And you just sit and pray for them and the family comes in and they're all, they're crying, but they're smiling. There's like tears and smiling at the same, like, we know where they're going. We're going to see them again. This was the point of their whole life. This is the point of everything in this moment. And there is a peace. There, there's something about that that's revealed to everyone in the room. Doctors and nurses, they're like, okay, I've seen people panicked and screaming at their death, and there is such peace here. It goes on and it says, because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. See, God wants to kill us so he can be seen. So that people will see what he's made. He wants to get us out of the way and say, look at Jesus. And we keep trying to get us in the way. I do it all the time. I try to dress myself all the time without asking Susan. And as I'm going out of the house, she's like, are you, are you wearing that? That was a good attempt. Might want to change that. I love you. I just, and she's like, and the reason I tell you that is because I know you're representing yourself and you really don't care about that, but we're married. And when you walk out of the house, you represent me and other women are asking the question, like, does she not tell her husband does she not care about him? Does she not love him enough to say, no, no, honey, no, I love you? That's exactly what God wants in our lives. He goes on at Matthew, Jesus says this, and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And anyone finding his life, if you find life, you'll sell everything. You'll get rid of it all to have real life. They'll lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me, Oh, you're going to find a life you've always been looking for. And then Jesus goes on to say later in Matthew, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, look, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you were carrying a cross in the Roman Empire, what did that mean for you? Death. It meant you were convicted you're carrying it, you're going to the hill to put it in the ground, and they're going to nail you on it. That's what it means. It means the sentence is over, the conviction has happened, there's no reprieve, you're going to the cross. You've, you've exhausted all just options of trying to get out of the death. And Jesus is like, if you will pick up the reality of death and live in that knowing that there is a life that I'm giving you, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world? He makes all of his pots. He has all these things he's planted, 
and yet forfeits or loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? You see, that's the question. What will we give in exchange for what we believe real life is? And if you believe in Jesus and you believe that real life is found in giving your life for others like he gave his life for others, believing that there's a resurrection and a new life, and you do that, then you will experience the God of comfort in a way that is supernatural. But if you want the cheap gospel, if you want the cheap message about Jesus, that Jesus wants to come and just bless your life and just do whatever you want, you are going to find an empty, dead gospel. And it is going to leave you wanting and you will deconstruct your faith because Jesus didn't do what you said because you said, God, this is the pot I want. You make me this way. And God's like, well, hold on. I thought I was the potter. It doesn't mean we can't ask God for things. It doesn't mean we can't come, but we just come and say, God, here I am. I'd like for you to put something in here. And he says, no, we're not going to. You're giving yourself, but you're allowing him to have control. Goes on and says this in Galatians. Galatians, when Paul writes this book to deal with people who are trying to get people to obey a bunch of laws so that they can have life, so they can be saved right? Paul writes Galatians saying, no, that's not how you get saved. You can't do enough good things to outweigh the penalty of death. The penalty's death. Someone has to die, God says, for what you've done. Look what he says. Christ has liberated us to be free. For you were called to be free, brothers, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law, the entire law is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. I say then walk by the Spirit. You won't carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's against the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what's against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. See, God says he wants us to be, when we die to ourselves, the Holy Spirit comes into our life to give us new life. We looked at that a few weeks ago when Paul wrote this in the earlier chapters of 2 Corinthians. And he's saying, look, I want you to have life. I want you to be free, but it's not a freedom to do whatever you want. It's a freedom to say, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I am free to let you do it because I don't know what I'm doing. It's a freedom that, that the world's looking for, but they just don't want to die to get it. They don't want to surrender because that doesn't sound like freedom. Surrendering doesn't sound like freedom, right? That sounds like captivity. No, you're already captive. Look at what Romans says when Paul writes this in 718 of Romans. He says, for I know that nothing good lives in me. Do you believe that? Because most people think they're a good person. I'm a good person. Really? Really. I guarantee if I, tell, if I started talking to you about the good you do, and we started talking to maybe just for a few minutes, five, ten minutes, you would find that most of the good you do has nothing to do for the glory of God, and it's all for your own benefit. All of it. Like, you don't smoke. Why? Because you, you don't like smoking? You, you don't like a buzz? No, because I don't want to die from lung cancer. But if you could get a buzz without dying from lung cancer, oh, I think I'll get a buzz. 
right? Like, that's what we do. We don't think about it from a standpoint of, wow, there is nothing good in me if God isn't the one putting it there. And then he says, that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is in me, but there is also no ability to do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if what I do not want to do, I am, if I do what I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it. But it is the sin living in me. So I discovered this principle. I love this. I call this the doo-doo passage, right? It's just a bunch of doo-doo. Like, I'm just, I'm, I just do stuff I don't want to do. Just. He says, I discovered a principle with this war that's happening. Look at what he says. When I want to do what is good, evil is within me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. I love Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he wants to change me. I believe he wants to make me into who he wants me to be, right? That's all the law. And then it says, look. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Paul writes, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched little pot I am. Who will rescue me from this mess and brokenness and shattered life that I have participated in? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God. This is right, and I keep struggling to do it. But with my flesh, the law of sin. I know the right thing to do, but I've got this battle but thanks be to Jesus who knows that battle because he took on flesh and showed us how to live out our lives if we surrender to him. Galatians goes on to say, says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. And he lists a bunch of things there that are obvious. And then he says, those who practice these kinds of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word practice means you're actively doing it to get something. That's why you practice something right? It's not accidental. Like you're practicing it because you're trying to get an outcome. That's what practice is. It's plan. That, that's what Paul's talking about. Then he says, but the fruit of the spirit, you put the little seed in, you see it start going. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against these things, there's no law. You can do as much of them as you want. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus, look at this, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's saying, I don't want what I desire. I don't want what makes me feel good. I want what God says is good, and I want what helps others to see that God is good. And we, in our culture, keep selling, God wants you to feel good. I mean, he does, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. It's not, he doesn't want you miserable. He's just like, you live in the reality of this world and it's hard. He goes on to say this in Exodus, when it comes to the law, it says, then God spoke all these words to the Israelites. And he said, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land, out of the place of slavery. I'm the one that gave you a new life. I rescued you. I took you from nothing and I brought you to something. And look at what he says. He says, okay, now if I've done that, here's some simple things. Don't have any other gods besides me. <laughs> it's like when you get married and the two of you are like, okay, you're my pot. You're my pot. We're going to make a one pot. We're going to... 
We're going to do this life thing together and plant together. And then the other person is like, well, I want three more pots. No. And God's no different. He's like, look, I thought we had a commitment. A relationship, you're not looking for another God to fulfill you. You're not looking for something else to bring you comfort. And then he says, do not make an idol for yourself. In other words, don't say, well, I don't know, but maybe this little rabbit's foot out here will help me out. Don't do it. That's an idol. You don't need a rabbit's foot. You got the guy that created the rabbit. Trust him. And then he says, I'm a jealous God. He's a jealous husband. No more, no other pots. He's a jealous wife. I don't want any other pots in your life. We're together. I, we're, we're one. And then he says, punishing the children for the father's sins to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. It's like, oh my goodness. This is going to affect my kids and my grandkids. Yeah, promise it will. We see it all over our culture. We see sin and brokenness always affect the children and grandchildren. And we go, oh, that's so terrible. A God that just, man, that's so, look at what he says next. But showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Who did we just talk about? Abraham. How many thousands of generations are we from Abraham right now? And he's still showing faithfulness to Abraham. You're here. Abraham's in heaven going, wow, God. She came to know Jesus. He came to know Jesus. Thanks, that's awesome. There's an adopted child. Wow, my family just keeps growing. Like he's still fulfilling to the thousand generation. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know the death you've experienced. But if you keep focusing on just the mess and the pain of the second and third generation and you don't start looking to the thousands and to resurrection, you're gonna be miserable. You'll never have comfort. That doesn't mean you don't recognize the pain you've caused and deal with it. But it means that when you recognize the pain, you, you tell those people, there's a thousand generation and that's why I'm talking to you about this. That's why I'm confessing my sin to you because I don't want you to live in what I did to you. I want you to be free to the thousand generation. That's the gospel. He goes on. He says, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. In other words, don't say God told you to do stuff that he didn't tell you to do. People run around all the time. Oh, God told me. Well, if God told you, you should write it down because that's scripture. We have scripture. I don't need any more. I got, God told me. I got it all right here. I don't need someone to look at me and go, well, God told me I was supposed to tell you this. Really? Show me. Show me. Sh show me where you were praying for me, concerned for me, loving me, and you, you found the scripture to tell you. Like, this is the word of God. He goes on and he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember, what did priests do on the Sabbath? They served everybody else. They didn't go take a nap and watch football. And we love to talk about the fact that God has created us to be a priesthood of believers, that we are all priests and priestesses for God. We are all the priesthood of believers. But the second the Sunday comes, we're like, it's my rest day. Got to take a day off. No, it's your day to serve together, to be with the body, because that's what the priests did. It's to invite people to come worship God. Hey, we're having service. Temple's having, bring your sacrifices. Come on. That's what the priests did on the Sabbath. And it was restful for them to do that. And then he goes on and he says, look, labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is to be a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work because he rested on the seventh day. This isn't work, folks. This is worship. There's a difference. 
It is not work for me to come here and serve you. It's not work for me to come here on a Sunday morning. It is my act of worship. He goes on, he says, honor your father and mother so that you may have long life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not covet. He gives them all of these great laws that no one else had to protect them and help them. And look at what happens. All the people, we looked at this last week, all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains surrounded by smoke. And when they saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Oh, I don't want to get too close. He's, he's going he's to ask, he's gonna, I've, I've, I've got to keep this. And if I get too close to God, he might ask me to give this up so I can keep my distance. I don't want to get too close to church. I want to be, I want to be too religious. I've I seen those people. I want to be too religious. I want to be too serious about God. Stop keeping your distance. Come to him. Here I am. I believe your law is good. I don't know how to do it. I'm failing. But man, I, I think you can help me. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. I will find, you will find rest for yourselves for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, you gotta carry some kind of yoke in life. You do. You're either gonna be a slave to sin or a slave to God. You gotta put on a yoke and serve God or put on a yoke and serve yourself in the world. God created you for work. He created Adam and Eve, put them in paradise and the first thing he gave Adam was a job. <laughs> In paradise. Heaven is not going to be playing a harp on a cloud. Because if that's heaven, I don't want to be there. Heaven is going to be serving one another, working, building, growing things, celebrating all these things together. It's going to be a new earth where stuff doesn't die. And it's just exciting and fun. And when I fix stuff, it stays fixed for eternity. It's going to be amazing. That's exactly what Jesus is like, come to me. We will build something that will last. You'll find the comfort you're looking for. And the people of God, when they were given the law of God, they looked at the law of God and say, I don't want that, God. That's too much. God, keep my distance. It's going to cost me too much. It's going to be too hard. That just breaks God's heart. You see me that way? I'm trying to protect you. These laws will protect you, will protect your wives, will or your wife, will protect your sons and daughters. It will protect your nation. So you see me as some big meanie? That's not it. You'll kill yourselves. You guys are awful to one another. You need boundaries. And I want to help you find them because I love you. And I want it to the thousandth generation. He goes on and says this, so death works in us, but life in you, he says. Paul's like, just remember when you're dying, the reason you're dying, like the priests of the Old Testament, was to bring life to others. When stuff is dying, God's not just a big fan of killing stuff. He's killing things because he's trying to get people to see where life is. Then he goes on and he says, 
And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore we speak. We gotta talk about this. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you, a body. Paul's like, we're gonna die. I'm gonna die preaching this gospel. That's what he's saying. And he did, he died. He went to prison and they killed him for preaching the gospel. And he's like, but don't worry, I'm gonna see you again. It's all good. And then he goes on, look. Indeed, everything is for your benefit. Why? So that grace extended through more and more people, thousands, thousands of generation, may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. Grace, not law. You know what grace is? Grace is, I'm an idiot. I can't do this. I messed up again. And God says, thank you. I'm just looking for those that will come to me who recognize how weary and heavy laden they are and will allow me to fill them with my spirit, will listen to me, will come into the body of Christ and will get whole and be resurrected. They will give up their dead life and find a life that's living. Then he says, look at this. Therefore, we do not give up. Don't give up. Do you know how many people in scripture were so messed up? Samson. Samson was one of the most messed up figures in scripture, right? I mean, read the story of Samson, strongest man to ever live. He's supposed to take on the Philistines. And instead of taking on the Philistines, he's like, I'll do that later. Right now, I'm going to give me some glory and honor. I'm going to show people I'm Samson. I'm the strongest man. I'm going to live for me. I'm going to have the women I want. I'm going to do what I want. And it did not. And in the end, he's blinded. He's got nothing left. His strength is gone. And where do we find Samson? He's now in a big football stadium with all the Philistines making fun of him, all of them celebrating everything. And they put him between two pillars that are holding up the stadium. And in that moment, blind and unable to see, he realizes where he is. And Samson says, God, give me strength one more time. And here's what he says to glorify and honor you because I have, I, that's not what I was doing. Please, Lord, let me fulfill what you called me to do to eliminate the evil in the world. And he pulls the pillars down on top of himself. You see, Solomon didn't commit suicide. We think that. Solomon figured out where life was and he gave his life so he could be resurrected and born again. That's different than becoming depressed and killing yourself because God isn't using me and he's done with me. And I'm, no, 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 no. Samson's like, I get it now. I have, I have been dying so long. I've been in prison so long. I'm blind. I, I'm, I get it now. I've got to die. And I know if I do, you'll give me life. And God supernaturally gives him the strength to do what he was supposed to be doing his whole life in his last moment. And you know what? Samson's in heaven. Samson is with God. Samson is walking on, like, he messed up his whole life. But he repented. And then it says, don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, Samson lost everything. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. Look at what 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who die or asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Paul's like, you got to understand, we don't believe in death like the world believes in death. We don't believe in suffering and trials like the world believes in suffering and trials. We don't because we had a savior who took on flesh and showed us how to believe in those things. 
We got a different message that we're living for. You know, one of the things we do in our church is we talk through and we do communion according to the Old Testament festivals. And the reason this is important is because you have to understand these festivals mean something because they all point to Jesus. They all point to what we're talking about. Every one of these festivals required sacrifices, death for the sins of the people. That was the point of the festival. The Feast of Passover was where they sacrificed the Passover lamb because God took them out of Egypt. We read about that. Delivered them from slavery. They put blood on the doorpost and God passed, the, the angel of death passed over the homes that had the doorpost, on the, the blood on the doorpost to say, okay, there's been blood shed for this home. I can move on to the next one. That's what Passover means. And actually, Passover is the beginning, so to speak. Not really, but it's kind of the beginning of the Jewish calendar. And then that leads them into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they clean out all the yeast, which represents sin in the Bible, out of their home, right? And then they celebrate this. And then it, you count 50 days to the Feast of first fruits, which is Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes in. It's when they were given the Torah. They put blood on the doorpost in Egypt. They went out. They went to the Mount, Mount Sinai. They waited 50 days. And on the 50th day, the word of God was given to them that we just read in Exodus. It, it follows a pattern. And then you have the Feast of Weeks or Shabbat. That's the, the Pentecost after first fruits, counting the days. You have that moment where it's now the first fruits are being brought in. Now you come to the fall, which is where we're at right now. How many of you even knew that it was Rosh Hashanah this week? That you knew that this week was the beginning of the highest of high holy days? That breaks my heart. Because all of these festivals are about Jesus. And Rosh Hashanah, you know what it's about? It's about the trumpets being blown to remind us Jesus is coming back. Because you would blow the trumpet to say the Savior's already died. The Passover lamb's already died. He's already given us the law and filled us with the Holy Spirit. Now the trumpet blows and that's what I've been waiting for since Shabbat. Now the trumpet blows and all the nation goes, oh, and then there's the day of atonement. The day of atonement is when they, they make the final sacrifice for the people for all of their sins for the year. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come and give the final judgment. His sacrifice is done, but there's going to be a final moment. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks, which is Sukkot. The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Are you ready? That's where there's a banquet table to eat with God forever. And the Israelites would have to go out. They would build these booths, these temporary tents. They would put a hole in the top to represent God coming through the tent to eat with them. Why? Because he died for them. He filled them with his spirit and gave him his word. He's announced that he's coming. He's paid the price. Let's party. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. And most of you don't even know what these are in the Bible. Why? God is building something. When you miss that, you miss so much of like what Jesus is doing. Because someday, like we're right now, we're kind of in the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, harvest time. We're going out in the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing in the harvest because we know the trumpet's going to blow someday. <laughs> I know exactly where I am in the story. That should encourage you. you. Then that makes you understand why we, it's not done yet. The feasts aren't over yet. We're waiting for Christ to come back. And God gave this as a picture to his people. 
in the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians goes on to say, Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. They would have to travel to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate those festivals. Their whole fa- all the men in the family had to leave their jobs, leave everything, get on the road and travel together and leave their wives and daughters alone for invading armies and trust that God wouldn't kill their wives and daughters. To go sacrifice and to do what God has done and said so that they could keep looking for God to come and get them. The sacrifices didn't save them. It was them going and saying, God, we can't save ourselves. We know this is a temporary offering. This this is nothing. This lamb, this bull, this, this grain is nothing. We need you to save us. And the whole Old Testament is pointing to that moment. And he says, look, it's a momentary light affliction. So we do not focus on what's seen. It's not about the temple and the lambs and the sacrifices and all that stuff. We focus on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. We don't have the Old Testament system anymore because it was a temporary system. When Jesus came to be the ultimate sacrifice and give his pot, his flesh, his life for ours, guess what? It's over. It's finished. Now we just look to him. And then he says, for what is seen is temporary, but what, un- what is unseen is eternal. Then he goes on, he says, for we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is being destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven. Are you longing for Rosh Hashanah? I am. I can't wait till the trumpet blows. I can't wait till Christ comes back to get me. I can't wait until he fixes this mess. Every day I think about that when I'm struggling, when I'm, I'm like, oh, goodness, I'm looking to you. I can't wait to eat at your table because right now I have this temporary table where I eat these crackers and drink this grape juice. And it's just, there's not that much. I want the table. I can't wait for the day when it's full. He goes on and he says, indeed, we groan while we wait. Look at what it says in this tent. The word there that Paul uses in this tabernacle. We're in this temporary booth that we had to build and and meet with God in, and it's just not enough. It's not permanent. It's this temporary booth that's going to get torn down right after the festival's over and it's gone. And we want a permanent dwelling with God. And Paul's like, yeah, that's how you should feel every day. Your body should feel that way. And trust me, as you get older, you will feel that way. As you get older, things hurt, things break, things don't work the same, and you're like, I I need a new body. And Jesus is like, I got you, I I got you, right? He goes on, look, he says, indeed we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven. Since we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we're in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up by real life. So that this pot I'm holding on to will just be swallowed up, made dust, so that I can have the real life. And the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us his spirit as a down payment. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, so we are always confident and know that while we are at home in this tabernacle, in this tent, and we're just this little pot, we are away from the Lord 
For when we walk by faith, for we walk by faith, not by sight, and we are confident and satisfied to be out of this pot someday and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. We should live the same life as we are. The life that you want in heaven, you should be living now. And the life you should want in heaven is to do what God tells you to do and glorify him. Not try to make a heaven for yourself because you can't make it. God has to make it. You're in a temporary little tent, a temporary little booth. It's going to get blown over. It's going to be gone. This morning, we're going to celebrate Feast of Tabernacles. John 1, 14 John 1.14 says, the word became flesh, bless you, you were near death there, it's close, glad you're still breathing. The word became flesh and took up resident among us. Do you know what the word took up resident means? It's the word for tabernacle. It's the, it's the word, Jesus became flesh and said, I'm going to build a tabernacle. This is the tabernacle to have a relationship with me. Come eat with me. Come all who are weary and heavy laden. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. He's not full of wrath and meanness. He is offering his grace, just like he did to Samson. He's offering hope. And he's saying, and once you embrace that, then I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to lie to you to get what I want out of you like everybody else does. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm going to speak truth to you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to walk you through it because I care about you. And I'm not going to give up on you, Jesus says. Jesus says, no one can snatch you from his hand. That's what the Bible says. He's God. Who can get in God's hand and be like, I got him. No, I'm God. You can't have him. He goes on, John, and says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Why do we use bread and communion and grape juice? Because it represents Jesus' body, the bread that came from heaven, and the blood that he shed when he got here because blood had to be shed to be paid for. And he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give his flesh to eat. You see, they, they rejected God. They weren't willing to die. They were looking for Jesus to come back. You ready for this? They were looking for Jesus to come back, overthrow the Romans, and give them the life they wanted. Give them the life they thought the Bible said they should have. Give them what they wanted. And Jesus came and said, no, 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 no. You need to give your life so that others can have me. And the Jews said, we don't want that. And then it says in Isaiah, yet Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hands. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that you are the work of God's hands? He wants to. He wants to form you into who he wants you to be. And he'll start out small. He's a tiny little pot. And he will grow things that for thousands of generations will have an impact. And you may not understand it. It may look insignificant your whole life. Doesn't matter. Abraham was one man, had one promised child. And look at where we are. So this morning, let me ask you, 
Jesus, when Paul's writing his letter to the Corinthian church, his first letter, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, we don't do this to get saved. We do this to recognize the one we've already given our lives to who has saved us. This is just a symbol of someday the trumpet's going to blow. Rosh Hashanah is going to come. The day of atonement will be finalized. And this puny table we're going to eat at this morning, we're going to have a much better table. But this is the reminder that that's what we're waiting for. And it's worth living for, he says. So Paul writes and says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, this is what it's all about. And then he says, Look, look. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This would have been the cup of the Passover meal. This would have been the cup of the wrath of God. And said, this cup is a new covenant established by my blood, not the blood of a lamb, but the lamb of God. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He says, he doesn't say we have to do it every Sunday. He says, just as often as you do it, remember why you're doing it. Because it's about my death and the resurrection that's coming. The Passover death has happened for you, and the resurrection is coming. But don't get that out of order and think God's going to resurrect you now. Nope, you got to die first. And then he says, look, so a man should examine himself. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let me ask you this morning, as we celebrate communion, the way we do this here at our church is I'm just going to go over. I'm going to uncover the table. I'll pray here in a moment, and you can come up when you're ready. If you examine yourself and you're not ready, then I would encourage you to pray and wait. Wait. And then you are going to come up, and you are going to, before the Lord, take the cup and take the bread and celebrate what Christ has done for you. You can come back to your seat and pray. You can maybe grab someone else and pray with them if that's what you would like to do. We do this as a body, as a church, recognizing what Christ has done for us. And if you are not a Christian, don't do this. Don't do this if you're not a Christian. Don't do it. Only Christians do this. There's no reason for you to do it. But if you're not a Christian, how about you become one so you can do it? Like surrender now. Be like, I'm done. Here's the pot, God. I'm in. And if you do that, Jesus welcomes you to his table to remember about 30 seconds ago, what you did (laughs) and what he did for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for communion and the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you for what you're doing in our church. You're changing lives. You're planting a church. We're giving to missions all over the world. I'm just super grateful. Lord, thank you that we are called to give our lives. We die to our flesh so that we can live in the spirit. And I thank you that you're patient with us in doing that. And this morning, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not trusted you as Lord and Savior and surrendered and turned over their little pot and said, here, I pray today would be the day. And I pray that they would see that you're going to begin to fashion them into who you want them to be. 
We thank you and praise you. May we give thanks as we take communion this morning because twice you said, I give thanks. So may we smile, may we tabernacle, may we be excited about your body and what you did for us in our body, in our church, in your name, amen. This morning, we get to do something incredibly special. Um, we get to commission Iglesia Cristina Baptista Church, and we get to commission Pastor Antonio and his wife, Ada, to plant a church, a Spanish-speaking church here in Bloomington. Um, this has been a process for many years, almost a decade, that churches have been praying that a Spanish-speaking church, uh, Protestant church, would come here, specifically with our Baptist partners. Um, I want to give you just some quick information. You know, our church... We give 15% of every dollar that comes in, we give away to missions because we're serious about new life. We're serious about bringing new churches and new things in to, to reach people. And, and we're serious about church planting. We give 1% of that 15% directly goes to funding. We will be funding over the next several years and helping to, to pay for and support the church. Um, you know, we believe in cooperation and autonomy. So we are actually an independent church. We're a part of a cooperation of churches. Some would call a denomination. But we are autonomous. The denomination cannot tell us what to do. We willingly cooperate together to do mission work. That's what we do. And we, and we willingly cooperate together to believe some basic core conviction level beliefs. That's what we do. So we cooperate as Baptists, Southern Baptists, Great Commission Baptists, that's who we are, but we are an independent church. And I've never understood, a lot of churches will be non-denominational. It's like, well, what does that even mean? Listen, I'm glad we're a part of a group because if I ever go nuts, you got some people you can talk to. It's not the guy that planted the church, went crazy, now he's teaching nutty stuff and we don't know what to do with him. You can go to these partners. We have local church partners that are not of our denomination, but are good churches that have agreed to some conviction level beliefs and not swapping sheep back and forth, which a lot of churches do. So we've got about seven churches we're agreed to. We have 15 churches in our local association, okay, that are Southern Baptists in our area that are heavily supporting this new plant, supported us when we planted. 15 churches that gather together about once every month to pray, to fellowship, and to talk about what we're doing in missions we have 425 churches in our state cooperating together to plant new churches, support one another, put on conferences, and help one another. Through Sin Network, which is our North American missions arm, there are over 3,000 churches that are a part of the Sin Network that's supporting this church at $1,000 a month to get them started. This is why cooperation is beautiful, because you can do more together than you can do by yourself. And we're a part of 3,500 missionaries that are being sent out all over the globe to share the gospel in the last to reach places on earth. And we get to be a part of that with every dollar we give. And then finally, we are a part of almost 40, over 47,000 other churches that call themselves Southern Baptists that are independent churches, but cooperate together to do these things. It's amazing. So we believe in cooperation and autonomy, that every local family, every church should be autonomous. When the Bible says when you marry someone, you are to leave and to cleave to your wife, mom and dad shouldn't be telling the new marriage what to do. Does that make sense? You gave them away. You said, go, start a life. That doesn't mean we don't help you. It doesn't mean we don't come alongside you, but you're your own thing. So this isn't FX Spanish. 
This is not FX Church Spanish. This is a new church. A new family is being started. They are autonomous, but we're cooperating together because I don't want control over Jose and Ada and their church. I don't want it. And so we, in 2019, there was a church planted at Oak Hill in Evansville, a Spanish-speaking church. Julieta and Paul were a part of that Spanish-speaking congregation. They ended up moving to Bloomington because Julieta just made Paul move to come be with the grandkids, okay? Just so you know. He, look, he's shaking his head. I'm not lying. It's a true story. They had no idea that God was going to use that move to be faithful to their family to start a new church family. And that church in Evansville looked at them and said, hey, have you thought about maybe starting a church in Bloomington? They had no idea there was an association of 15 churches praying for a Spanish church for 10 years. They had no idea how God was putting all the pieces together. Then one day, Pastor Antonio and Ada were driving to visit their son, who is in the back, who is a church-planting, Spanish-speaking pastor in Indianapolis with our network. And as they're driving, they drive by Bloomington and they go, what if there's anything here? He was... Happy as a lark to be pastoring in Kentucky where he was at. He was just fine. But, you know, in him is that desire to want to see God do things. And so he just decided to stop by Walmart and look for Spanish food. Like literally, he would stop by Walmart and see if there was Latino food there. And he stopped by and he said, there's a lot of people here. I wonder if there's a church. He had no idea Paul and Julieta and Oak Hill had started a church. They had no idea. None. So he calls, talks to his son. His son says, yeah, there is. And all of a sudden this thing comes together and then Pastor Antonio and his wife Ada move and they come here to Bolivia. They, they, they leave and they go and they're coming here and they just moved here in August. And so today we get to pray over them and to pray for this new church. When it starts, they're already meeting in homes. They've got a pretty good-sized group that's meeting in a home on a regular basis, and eventually they'll start Sunday services. They're just not doing that quite yet. They're going to get that critical mass, meet together, and then they're going to start. Man, what an exciting thing to be a part of. Like, this is how it's supposed to work. Churches planting churches. We are the sponsoring church to plant this church. Working with them, helping them, supporting them. That's how it works. It's not some big organization planning church. It's a church planning a church and then asking others to partner with that church, that new family. And we get to be a part of that. So right now, I'd like to ask Jose, Antonio, and Ada to come up. Love you guys. <laughs> Turn around and look at them. Don't look at me. We barely understand each other. <laughs> and it's great. God has been so faithful. And we are so excited to be a part of this. And this man has left and come to our city to reach the people we love for Jesus. Left his... What he was used to was just fine in Kentucky, no problems, and came here at his age <laughs> to start again. I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. I'm very young. <laughs> so we want to pray for them. And here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask all of you to stand. Okay? Isabel, I want you to translate. You can grab that as I pray. And we are going to pray for them. I want you guys just to raise a hand of prayer over them. 
it's going to be too hard to get all of us up here. Okay? And I'm going to pray and Isabel will translate. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for who you are and what you're doing. Lord, thank you for sending us a man who loves you and wants to see your church grow and do its work and its mission. Lord, we pray for this new Spanish-speaking church and we pray for those you have already brought Lord, would they surrender like we talked about this morning to your work and your mission to reach those who don't know you but speak Spanish in Bloomington? And Lord, we ask for fruit. We ask for you to bring in your harvest because Rosh Hashanah is coming. Lord, we give you the praise and the glory and we commission this new family, this new church for your glory and your honor and in your name. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Amen.